That's great. Thank you for, for reading for us, Phil. Uh, you know, it was so good to have Pete Cornford with us from Redeemer Church in London last week, wasn't it? Those of you who were here, I'm sure you would agree. Uh, he just served us so well, uh, speaking to us about faith in difficult times. And, and we are certainly uh, in difficult times. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to listen uh, to what Pete shared with us last week, maybe you're away, uh, or maybe you're kind of joining us online for the first time today, I would encourage you uh, to go and have a listen to that at some point this week. I'm confident that it will do you good. Well, we are, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes in our series, The Search for Meaning, this week, as Phil just read to us, uh, and we're in chapter 9. Now, you probably noticed, as Phil read, that Solomon doesn't really say anything new in these verses. In fact, he kind of covers a lot of ground that he's already covered in the preceding eight chapters. Um, But what he does in these verses that we're going to get into in a minute is he takes a slightly different approach than he has done previously. So he takes a a few of his major themes that he's been working on through the book uh, and he kind of doubles back around on them. And as he does, um, he sheds some new light on them. So I'm just... For some reason, this has gone all squonky. It keeps popping off my ear. It's really, really irritating. Um, But there we go. We'll try and get it sorted. Good. So he brings two of his major themes, which we're going to look what they are now. And they are not comfortable themes. They are large themes, but they're both of them kind of abrasive and uncomfortable and confrontational themes. And he, he brings these two themes together and those are the certainty of death and our mortality uh, and the certainty of suffering. Uh, and he takes these two themes, but then right between these two themes, he talks to us about how we should live in the light of these two things uh, and about how we should respond to them. Uh, and so we're going to dig in together and see how it applies for us today. So first up, we come back to what is probably Solomon's favourite theme uh, throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and that is of the certainty of death for each and every one of us. He writes this from verse 2, he says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. What what he's saying is, is like good, bad, rich, poor, wise, foolish, religious, irreligious. It doesn't matter. We all share a common destiny and that is one day we'll die. Death doesn't discriminate. I'm sure that is something by now at this point in the series, if you hadn't already realised, you have now realised. But it's not something we like to think about, is it? It's not something that we like to think about. As a society, we, we like to try and push that idea away and hold it at arm's length. We don't like being confronted 
with our mortality. We find it unsettling and uncomfortable. We find it a, a, a kind of a, 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 there's an unease about talking about death. That's part of the reason that coronavirus has been so hugely challenging in our society, is that it's, it's confronted us with our mortality, and many people simply don't know how to deal with that and how to respond to that. But once again here, Solomon won't let us push it out of our minds. He won't allow us to, to try and remove it from our thinking or pretend it's not real. Uh, and so I just, along with Solomon, before we get into anything else, want to remind you that one day you're all going to die. And actually, that right now, you're closer to death than you were at the start of this service. You're closer to death than you were when you went to bed last night. Now, we can kind of have a dry chuckle, but actually there's a nervousness in your laughter even because that's not a comfortable thing to contemplate. But it's true. It's irrefutably true. However much time you might have, we're all steadily edging closer to death. And then Solomon gives us his second theme. On top of that, he comes back round to one of his other favourite themes in the book, and he says this, The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. He's saying you can be as fast or smart or strong or good-looking as you like, but it won't stop you from going through painful times. He says, evil times will come unexpectedly on them all, on all of humanity. So be it sickness or heartbreak, bereavement, bankruptcy, or some other sudden and unexpected tragedy, like a global pandemic, perhaps, or a national lockdown, you will have hard times. It's another of the key themes of this book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wants us to know, like, guys, you're going to die one day, and before you get there, you're going to have some hard times. You will suffer. However smart you are, however strong you are, sooner or later you'll suffer and struggle in some way as some tragedy befalls you. And we read it and we're like, wow, Thanks, Solomon. It's like cheery stuff, right? It's like both of these things. Really? Did we come to church to hear this? It's like, goodness, I turn on, if I want to hear about death and suffering, I just turn on the news, right? Thanks, Solomon. But there's something he says about these two things, as well as about how we should live in response to them. And that's this. He says of both of them that they're evil. 
that this is not how things should be. This is not how God designed things to be in the first place. So in verse 3, we, when he talks about death, he says, this is the evil in everything that happens, that the same destiny overtakes them all. He's like, he says, death is not part of how God designed this world. Before man's rebellion against God, death did not exist. And therefore, the very presence of death the fact that each one of us will one day die reveals to us that this world is broken, that there is evil, that things are not how they should be. And in verse 12, as he talks about these unexpected tragedies that may fall upon people, he says people are trapped by evil times. Again, he, he's, it's not like he shrugs his shoulders and says, you're going to die and bad things are going to happen and this is all good, so get used to it. It's all good and proper. He doesn't say that. No, 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 no. He says this is not right. This is inescapable reality. It's the world that we live in, but it's broken. It's faulty. It's evil. It's not how it was supposed to be. Death and suffering don't belong. But they are here. They are here, and we can't ignore them. So the truth is, is one day Christ will return and make all things new. Death will be no more. Suffering will be no more. But until he does, it's here. So in the knowledge of that, what, what do we do? How do we respond to that reality? We can't dodge death forever and we can't fully shield ourselves from sadness and suffering. What can we do? Well, Solomon, between these two reminders, tells us. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today because he says that we can live in this world of death and suffering, that we can live with beauty that we can live with purpose and wisdom and meaning. And that's what we're going to learn from these verses because, you see, one day you will die, <laughs> but right now you're alive. And so I want to encourage you to live. In fact, your decisions whilst you're alive will make all the difference when it comes to your death too, so live. Solomon says this in verse 4, he says this, just after talking about death, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. <laughs> As whilst there is breath in your lungs. Is there breath in your lungs? Are you breathing in and out? Well, it's hard to work through the masks, I know, but you're still breathing, yes, good. Consciousness, your heart's still beating. While there's breath in your lungs and whilst your heart beats in your chest, Solomon says, in the face of death and suffering, there is hope. We might be facing another national lockdown, but there is still hope. And it's good to be alive. In fact, Solomon injects some humour here. It's a slightly 
kind of peculiar joke in a way. He says, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. He's like, you can be impressive and powerful as you like, but if you're dead, even a living Jack Russell is better than a dead lion. Yeah? In fact, when you understand these two terms, these two animals and what they would have represented for the Jewish readers, for Solomon and his first readers, see, a lion, we still think of a lion as a majestic animal, yeah? The lion represented this kind of majestic, kingly figure. Jesus is spoken of, prophesied as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's this power and majesty and just awesomeness to a picture of a lion. But dogs, well, they didn't think much of dogs. And actually, uh, they called non-Israelites, those who were not God's people, those who were cut off from God, they referred to as Gentile dogs. It was a derogatory thing. It was like, and, and Solomon here says it's, it's, like it's better to be like the lowest of the low outcasts and alive. It's better to be in humble circumstances. It's better to be rejected by people and alive than it is to be considered majestic and powerful but dead. It's interesting, right? It says you might not be very powerful or impressive. I think you lot are fairly powerful and impressive, but I, I'd like to take courage from this verse. Solomon says, you might not be very powerful or impressive, but you are alive right now. And that's a good thing. Because life is a gift. And he's going to go on to tell us about the fact that life is a gift and that we should live it as such. Solomon speaks to us in these next verses with a voice of wisdom. He's like a, an old man. Think of your grandfather pulling on his slippers, sitting in his comfy chair. The voice of experience and sitting you down. Now listen to me, young man, young lady. <laughs> if I could do it over. It's almost the tone that Solomon takes in these verses, like I'd sit down and spend more time with my kids, or they grew up so quickly, it's like in a blink of an eye. They were grown up and left home. I guess you probably had some of those kind of conversations with people. Maybe some of the young families in the room, you talk to your parents or others who are older than you, and they're like, man, you might, they might be tiny now, but before you know it, they're going to be gone. Like, make the most of this time. This is the kind of tone that Solomon takes with us. Like time with granddad, he sits down in his easy chair and says to us, I don't know how long you've got. And neither do you. Maybe 40 years, 50, 80, 90 perhaps. But here's how to make the most of the time that you've got. And then he says this, go, Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy your life with your wife, whom you love, 
all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He begins with food. (laughs) I like the fact that he starts with food. I think it's quite significant, the fact he starts with food, but he begins with food. He says, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. He's saying, enjoy your food as a gift. Don't just take it as fuel. Don't just view it as a purely mechanical process to fuel your existence. Enjoy it. Get dinner with people you love. I think that's one of the the biggest frustrations and sadnesses for me of this lockdown period, right? That we can't get together and eat with people in the way we were talking about it as a family the other day, reminiscing about times when we'd crowd like 30 or 40 people into our home and and sit around and eat together. You know, people sat on the living room floor and there's food on the carpet, but I don't care because our house is full of life and we're enjoying food with people who we love. He says, eat with gladness and gratitude. Give thanks for it. He's like, eat your favourite food. Savour it. Don't bolt it down and move on to the next thing, but slow down. Enjoy the flavours. You like steak? Otavio cooks an awesome steak. <laughs> Otavio likes steak. I like steak when Otavio cooks it. Yeah, you like steak? He says, eat your steak and be thankful for it. Eat it with gratitude. Enjoy the texture. Enjoy the flavours as you eat it. Enjoy the smells. Use the senses that God has given you and drink it in deep. Now, you might think that this sounds like a fairly odd and kind of superficial. Like, why has he got a big thing about food? Well, it's probably a bigger deal than you think. A, there's some great wisdom in it, and B, there's some amazing symbolism in it too. And the wisdom is this, that actually families who dine together, there's some recent research that's come out of Harvard Medical School, families who dine together five times a week have been shown to be more stable, happy, and healthy than families who don't. These families who just kind of take a TV dinner or rush through on their way to the next thing aren't as cohesive and stable as families who sit down around the table to enjoy time and food together. There's a 15-year study done by Dr. Anne Fischel from Harvard Medical School, and the studies showed that families who eat together have much lower rates of substance abuse and depression as a general trend, and amongst teenagers who eat with their parents, rates of teenage pregnancy, mental illness, and disorderly behaviour remain significantly lower than solo diners. There's some wisdom in slowing down getting together and eating and talking. Jesus ate with people a great deal when he walked this earth. In fact, one commentator kind of jokes that Jesus eats his way through the Gospels. As you read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, he's like, seems to constantly be eating something with people. And over food, as he sat with them and taught them to, to give thanks to God for his provision, he also taught them 
revealed his character to them, revealed his love and glory to them. Over food, he extended forgiveness to people. Food was significant. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're going to share communion at the end of our time together today. See, Jesus gave us food. She a simple and humble meal of bread and wine as a symbol of his sacrifice for us, telling us to eat and drink with glad hearts, with thankfulness, remembering him. But there's another thing to food too that we sometimes forget when we share communion that I want us to remember today as we get to it. And that is this, that when Christ returns in glory to make all things new, I don't know if you've noticed this in the Bible, but there'll be more food. I like the fact that there's food involved. You see, one of the standout images that the Bible uses to talk about the return of Christ and what will happen as Christ and his bride, the church, you and I, are united forever when he returns is referred to in Revelation 19 as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's this glorious wedding feast of celebration, a banquet. And in Isaiah 25 in the Old Testament, we get this kind of prophetic picture of that event of God providing for his people in this. And we read this in Isaiah 25. There's not a slide for it, I'm sorry, but it says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So when we eat and drink, when we take communion, the bread and the wine, and we eat and drink. We remember what Christ has done. But we also look forward with eager expectation of that feast that we'll enjoy in his presence for eternity. We eat in expectation. See, for those who hope in Jesus, every good meal is a foretaste of what is yet to come. Yeah? It's not as good. I mean, it's not even close. Even Otavio's best steak from his Brazilian butcher supplier doesn't even come close to the feast that we will enjoy with our Lord on that great day. And so the best food you taste now is like a, a tiny foretaste of what's to come. It should teach us to look forward with glad and grateful hearts, but to look forward to with expectations. In some ways, this life is just a foreshadowing of 
The next, the very best things we enjoy are like little fleeting glimpses of what we will enjoy in eternity. I I really love the novels, uh, Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I've read them a whole bunch of times. I've read them through with the children, we've read them out loud together, and now they read them for themselves. And uh, my favourite out of all of them, though, is the book The Last Battle. And one of my favourite moments in this, this whole series of books, I'm sorry if you haven't read them and I'm going to spoil the ending for you, um, but there's this great moment at the end of the last book as these children who have met Aslan the Lion, who represents Christ in these books and have followed after him, find themselves effectively in heaven. It is the way it's portrayed in the book and they, they look around them and they realise that they see these things that are familiar, that they've experienced in this life, but they are so much richer and more beautiful and more stunning than they could have possibly comprehended. In fact, by comparison, you get this expression, the shadow lands. They refer then back to their experience on this earth as just like shadow lands in comparison to the beauty that they find themselves encountering in the presence of God in heaven. Uh, and this is the, the final statement, and I, I love it. This is what we're looking forward to. The best things we have now are just pointing forward. They're teaching us to long for our eternal home. I say this. This is how Aslan concludes speaking to them. He says, The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended, and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of these stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only ever been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and which in every chapter is better than the one before. In some ways, that is our future hope. Whatever our present circumstances, whatever your present circumstances, we eat with gratitude and gladness and we eat with eager expectation. What else does Solomon say we should do in this moment where there's death and suffering that are certain? He says, always be clothed in white. Well, it's a strange thing to say. Like, I mean, he's just got a thing about like white clothes. Is that because he lived in a hot country? It's like cooler to wear white linen or something? No, 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 no. <laughs> white robes or clothing in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, are a symbol, a picture of righteousness, of being holy, of living God's way, of living the way God tells us to. And so Solomon in here is saying, seek righteousness. 
He says, enjoy your food and look forward to your eternal hope and seek righteousness. Seek to live in obedience to God. What else? There's another slightly quirky one. It says, anoint your head with oil. What? Is some kind of like weird hair treatment? Like, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it would be good for your skin. But he says, no, 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 no. Oil in the Bible, again, in the Old and New Testament, is a symbol, it's a picture of God's anointing and of God's spirit. Solomon is saying, be filled with the spirit of God. As Paul writes, it's like, go on being filled. Keep being filled daily. Acknowledge your need and dependence on God. Ask him to fill you afresh. Ask him to anoint you for the day ahead, to fill you and equip you to live for him. So he says, enjoy your food. (laughs) Receive it with gratitude. Seek righteousness and, and ask God to fill you with his spirit, to equip you and enable you to do it. And we're going to take time in just a moment at the end of the service to, to ask him to do that for us as we head into this week. And then he says something else. He says, enjoy your wife, <laughs> whom you love all the days of your life. And you think, all right, enjoy your spouse. That sounds Okay. But then he says something else. He says, for this is your lot in this and toilsome labour under the sun. You think, Solomon's just tied together, and he does tie them together, enjoying life with your spouse and toilsome labour. Ah, (laughs) hang on a minute. I mean, Craig and Rachel only got married a few weeks back. Guys, if it doesn't feel like hard work yet, Solomon's got a surprise for you. It is. Okay, a good marriage requires work. He says, enjoy your spouse, love your spouse, delight in your spouse and work at it. You know, like who knows this to be true, that a good marriage requires work? You don't have to show me your hands, you just, you know. And if you don't, then you're just pretending Okay, good marriages don't just happen. Marriages of depth and stability and security take time and effort and energy. I love Jenny. I love Jenny very much. And we get on well, which is a good thing. Yes? But we have to work at our marriage. Like there are times when we irritate each other. But I'm not just talking about that, actually. I'm not just talking about the little niggles. I mean, knowing one another. Really knowing one another takes work. Connecting and understanding at the depth required for a truly good marriage takes time and effort. If you're investing all your energy and emotional capacity in other things, in in work or in recreation or in other friendships, the truth is your spouse and your marriage will suffer and intimacy will decline. I want to encourage you. Solomon wants to encourage you in these verses how we live well in the face of death and suffering as husband and wife is to work at it together 
Talk about your feelings. Guys, listen to her as she talks about her feelings and be prepared to talk about yours. It's work, but it's worth it. And then Solomon gives one last thing. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He's talking about work. He says, be diligent in the workplace. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Do your best. But notice this comes after his comments about your spouse. Yeah? Home has to be your priority. Work hard. Do a good job. Be diligent. But don't shortchange your family. Seems okay, right? Decent advice. We think Solomon, we, like it's maybe not all easy to do, but we're okay with this advice. Like enjoy good food with gratitude and thankfulness. Try and live in obedience to God. Seek righteousness and, and ask for his Holy Spirit to equip you and enable you to do that. Uh, love your spouse and be a good employee. Yeah, this seems okay. But... Solomon says something else in this passage. He, he rounds it off with this. He says, One sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. Uh-oh. One sinner destroys much good. Guys, even if you were all spotlessly sinless and righteous, which I had to break it to you, you're not, but even if you were, even one sinner, which I am, can destroy much good. I dare. See, one man fails to love his wife the way he should. One person decides to selfishly hoard what they've got and use it for their own pleasure rather than to serve and bless others. One person eats their food with an entitled and ungrateful heart. One person tries to go on their own without relying on the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. One lazy person shirks their responsibility and we spoil what is supposed to be beautiful. We reject God's ways and we think we know better and we get ourselves in a mess, right? In Proverbs 14, verse 12, we read this about this exact scenario. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Do we think we know what's best and it gets us nowhere so where do we go what do we do we recognize that we need a savior that we need forgiveness that daily we fall short and we need forgiveness and in christ we have one who is just and faithful to forgive who will not turn us away but who welcomes and embraces us and restores us and we read this in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. So we're going to come 
now to take communion together. Joe, I wonder if you could come to lead us in a song. But as we come to take communion, to eat, to drink, and to remember what Christ has done, and to look forward with eager expectation of that great final day, when what is tainted and marred by sin, what's spoiled by flies in the perfume, what one sinful person has destroyed. We look forward to all that being restored and radiant. As Joe leads us in this song in a moment and as the bread and wine are handed round, I want you to take a moment to listen as Joe plays and sings, but to take a moment to recognise that as we read Solomon's advice to us of like, this is what it looks like to live with godliness and gratitude in the face of death and suffering. To recognise that you've fallen short. That each one of us has and to, to consider those things that he points out. Have you lived with a kind of selfishness and entitled attitude instead of gratitude and generosity? Have you failed to love your spouse the way that you should and invest in your marriage? Have you tried to go it on your own instead of relying on the Holy Spirit? Recognise where in those things you've fallen short. And just take a moment, as Joe plays, to repent, to turn back to God and to ask for forgiveness. And after you've done that, to ask him to fill you with his spirit again, to equip you and energise you to live for his glory and the good of others this week.